This is Archive Atlanta, episode 86, Inman Park, part one. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. It's here, the long-awaited history of Inman Park, at least the first part of it. I've waited so long to do this neighborhood episode because A, I knew it was going to be a beast of information, and B, Inman Park residents are pretty diehard. Not that every neighborhood in Atlanta doesn't have diehard residents, but I definitely had the same anxiety I had when covering Decatur because, you know, Inman Park's history can be a little messy, and that part is often left out. Built as the first planned suburb for Atlanta's elite, it was also very much white-only, demolished worker housing, and most likely was made with convict labor and bricks. But it also gave us some of the most iconic homes in the city, a who's who of Atlanta's businessmen and influential families, and then a beautiful landscaped neighborhood that we still talk about today. Let's start with the boundaries and what is considered the neighborhood today. The southwest corner would be Edgewood Avenue at Airline Road, and then extend that all the way around the northern edge along the east side beltline. The east side is bordered by Moreland Avenue and the south side by DeKalb Avenue. Of course, things looked a little bit different when the neighborhood was first developed, as there was no Jimmy Carter Library, there was no Freedom Parkway, there was no Edgewood Avenue, and the beltline was an active railroad. Don't worry, it's hard for me to picture it too. Before we get into the white settlers of the land that would become Inman Park, I do want to note that this was Muscogee land, which had been ceded completely by the first half of the 1800s. The Hurt siblings are considered to be the majority landowners in this area. Mary Elizabeth Hurt and her husband James Jones had a farm that they bought around 1852. Records show that he owned eight enslaved people who worked this land, and he owned at least 29 more on two other farms nearby. The couple later sold the land to Mary's brother, George Troop Hurt, and then he again later sold some of his land to his brother, Augustus. For those that are into Civil War history or have visited the newly restored Cyclorama exhibit, the Troop Hurt home was featured prominently in the painting, and it is said to have stood exactly where the Jimmy Carter Library is today. During the last year of the Civil War, 1864, Union and Confederate troops met in battle all over this land. There's historical markers all over Inman Park, Um, but basically it was battle-torn. There are oral histories in, I think the Inman Park book has about just dead horses littering the land, um, tree stumps, not a very pretty picture. Enter another Hurt family member, Joel. Sharing his episode with Richard Peters, Joel Hurt certainly had his hand in almost everything about early Atlanta. But today we're going to focus on one of his corporations, the East Atlanta Land Company. A decade after the war's end, Joel Hurt already owned some land in the future Inman Park. But it wasn't until 1882 that he started buying parcels that could be combined into a subdivision. East Atlanta land was chartered in 1887, with Hurt controlling the majority share of stock. One of the investors was Samuel Inman, financier and one of the wealthiest cotton merchants in the country. The Inman family is so storied and complex. I actually have an episode in the works about them, but if you haven't noticed, this is where we get the name of the neighborhood. So while the name honors Samuel Inman, the entire neighborhood was the brainchild of Joel Hurt, who had been quietly working with landscape designer Joseph Forsyth Johnson for years. 
We cannot continue the story of Inman Park without talking about the birth of the suburb and suburban aesthetics. Popularized by architect Andrew Downing in the late 1840s, the idea of wealthy living in grand homes with lawns and gardens became the Gilded Age ideal. And this is actually funny for me to see this connection because before I moved to Atlanta, I lived in a small city called Newburgh, New York, which is on the banks of the Hudson River. But it was Gilded Age mansion treasure trove, um, most of it. So there was a little urban renewal situation that happened there. But there was three blocks right on the Hudson River with these gorgeous homes, and some of them were designed by Andrew Downing. Frederick Law Olmsted was a landscape architect who did Central Park, and I talked about him extensively in episode 39, but he designed and planned the first community in the United States. And this was 1869 in Riverside, Illinois, so not in the South, but trust me, eyes from across the country were watching this idea and watching the execution. I think I've mentioned this before, but in early Atlanta, neighborhoods were not segregated the way they became post-1890. Single streets had both white and black residents living interspersed, but they were very strict restrictions on whether a house itself was deemed white or black. And that means that once a black family rented a home, it was forever that way. Alongside strict societal norms, like a black man would cross the street to avoid sharing the sidewalk with a white man, um, this made it where exclusive separate neighborhoods weren't exactly necessary. Inman Park, or more generally the idea of a neighborhood specifically for wealthy white elites, had not yet been done in Atlanta. After the war, wealthy white residents built their homes on Peachtree Street and in Jackson Hill, but there was not a designated neighborhood for them. And yes, Richard Peters had the first idea, and he had some great plans, but Peters Park never materialized. He ended up selling his land or donating his land to Georgia Tech and then selling it for development. By the 1890s, building restrictions were becoming really popular in the U.S., so things like restrictive covenants, limiting property uses, etc. And then Atlanta is, like, knee-deep into the New South stuff. So civic elites are remaking the city, they're proposing parks, they're doing, you know, driveways, historic battlefields, civic plazas, so we're just trying to make ourselves pretty. The East Atlanta Land Company purchased just about 138 acres, investing $427,000, which today is like $12 million. The idea was simple. Market this as the bastion for the upper crust, social register Atlantans, and then make a huge return on your money. The first order of business was constructing Edgewood Avenue. The same Edgewood Avenue that we all know and love today did not exist in its current iteration until 1888. Take my description for what it's worth, but the area between Randolph Street and Krog Street was not connected. And today, the road travels over the Beltline, but remember that that was once an active railroad, and so traveling across to Krog Street was not possible. So the plan was to connect two existing streets with a bridge over the tracks, widening the road, and then condemning the land that separated them because it's Atlanta. The buildings on Foster Street that, quote, obstruct the view, end quote, were demolished, and in total, 30 properties were condemned and 94 destroyed, most of which was worker housing. The papers were excited, and they wrote that the avenue was, quote, divested of the shanties and the old tenement houses that give Edgewood Avenue a ragged and dilapidated aspect in some places, 
it will be, without exception, the most beautiful thoroughfare in the city, end quote. As construction progressed, they wrote that the dilapidations that used to encumber this commanding avenue were fading from sight. East Atlanta Land Company made a deal with the city of Atlanta. They would cover all of the costs incurred in creating Edgewood Avenue over $20,000. In exchange, the city would agree to condemn the land. And in the end, the company paid over $100,000 out of pocket. But for all this money, they got a 400-foot-long, 40-foot-high railroad trestle spanning from what is now Amaza Pizza over to Crog Street. And you could now get from downtown Atlanta into the beautiful new Inman Park. Edgewood Avenue opened officially in September of 1888, and the banner at the opening ceremonies reads, quote, Atlanta welcomes progress, end quote. The following year, if you listen to episode 74 about the streetcars, you know that Joel Hurt runs the first electrified trolley down Edgewood. And that was all part of the design, allowing downtown businessmen to hop on the streetcar at the junction of Edgewood and Pine and arrive just steps to their new homes. In 1889, the iconic trolley barn was constructed, which was used to service and house the cars. The first lane lot auction in Inman Park took place in 1889, and the crowd was the largest to ever attend an auction of that kind in the city. The very first plots of land were sold to people with the names of Hill... Moats, Randall, Colville, Payne, Green, Robinson. No one we know today, but these were all pretty big names in the city back then. And apparently John Robertson got the choices lot at the corner of Edgewood and Spruce. All of these men had paid anywhere from $1,500 to $3,000. And the East Atlanta Land Company made almost $20,000 in profit. Before the first homes can go up, East Atlanta Land moves to charter the neighborhood into its own city the city of Edgewood, which was nearby. This is not new. I mean, I think I just saw on Twitter that Buckhead residents are moving towards cityhood, and I will have this debate all day long, but this move is always tied to class and race. So the best part about this was that Edgewood was its own little city that I hope to do an episode on in the future. It did not want Inman Park to join them. They're like, no, we're good. Thanks, but no thanks. And the land company didn't really want to be a separate city. So this is where it gets kind of complicated. Being annexed into Atlanta was a positive. You get city services, police, fire, etc. But what the development company was attempting to do is make the case that they'd be willing to become part of Atlanta, but they would need to be reimbursed for all of the infrastructure improvements that they made. The argument is that if Inman Park was built originally in Atlanta, It would have been the city's responsibility or cost to install the sewers and the sidewalks and the lights and the water pipes. And their whole stance is, we're collecting these taxes from our wealthy residents. And if we become part of Atlanta, that tax money goes to other parts of the city, not our new shiny neighborhood. Guys, this is literally happening today. It happens in the North Fulton versus South Fulton debate. It happens every time a wealthy white neighborhood votes to incorporate as their own city we are doing the same things we did in 1890. So Inman Park states their grievances and they're like, well, if you're gonna annex us, at least take the entire neighborhood boundary and make sure to prohibit liquor. And so it's settled. Inman Park is the city of Atlanta. By 1889, more lots were graded and sold. 
deed restrictions in Inman Park were really strict. So it was residential only, no businesses. The house you built could cost no less than $3,000 and it had to be set back 20 feet or more from the road. And these restrictions were set to apply or to expire in 1910. And what that did was assure new residents that anyone who built later would also follow the look and the feel intended for the neighborhood. As you can imagine, Atlanta papers were having a field day with the marketing and promotion of this new place. Phrases like, quote, a community of select people remarkable for amiable, refined, and cultured characteristics commends Inman Park, especially to those who would rear their families in an atmosphere free from moral as well as miasmic contaminations, end quote. By the way, miasmic is defined as producing an unpleasant smell. I definitely had to look that one up. Homes here had gas, sewers, and pipes connecting to the waterworks, and Belgian block pavement lined the streets. The vacant home lots were all graded and planted with bluegrass. And this is as good a time as any to share that, although the papers did not explicitly say this, convict labor was most likely used to do this work. Joel Hurt was one of the largest users of said labor. He was a brutal convict owner, and he used convicts in all of his other enterprises. Based on the year that Inman Park was constructed, which coincides with the height of Chattahoochee brick production, I also do not doubt that these bricks were used to build the neighborhood. A large eight-acre lake graced the middle of Inman Park and was, quote, set apart for the pleasure of the families owning property there and for the white visitors exclusively. Or to speak plain, Negroes are excluded, end quote. If you're wondering if this is Springvale Park, not quite and not yet. Initially, Inman Park had several natural areas, the most impressive of which was called the Mesa. And it was described as being across from the new home of Philip Harrelson, which used to stand on the corner of Edgewood and Waverly Way. The Mesa had a mineral spring, and it would supply clean water to the entire neighborhood. And I talked about this in the water and waste episode, but where there is a natural water source in Atlanta, you can bet any amount of money there is a home to wealthy white people. The mineral spring was discovered just after the Civil War, and there's no doubt that that influenced Joel Hurt's choice of acreage and neighborhood development. There was some loose organization of the space, and it was called Spring Vale, two separate words, um, and they brought in rhododendrons from London to decorate the area. Before we keep going, I want to cover some of the earliest and most iconic homes in the neighborhood. One of the earliest houses was the cottage of Mary Hurt Jones, Joel's cousin, which stood by the Georgia Railroad. So there's, I don't know if the consensus is really clear, but he had it moved. Some people say maybe it's in the spot it was, but Joel Hurt said he moved it uh, in 1887, and it still stands today at 117 Elizabeth Street. Joel Hurt would actually live in it. He would, you know, he would make some alterations and changes. And he lived there until he built his mansion just a few hundred yards down the street after the turn of the century. What is today the Sugar Magnolia Bed and Breakfast was built in 1890. That was the same year as the Gray Victorian on Euclid Avenue with the big red balloons. I think it's pretty iconic home in the neighborhood. East Atlanta Land Company built uh, that Victorian as a spec house, and it would later become home to Ernest and Emily Woodruff. They lived there for a decade before they built their new home on the former Mesa. 
And now we talk about the Grand Dames, because this wouldn't be an Inman Park episode without them. Consider the first four homes in the neighborhood. One was a spec house, and three were commissioned by families that purchased lots. There is a very famous photo of these. I'm going to put that on social media, but I'm going to start all the way to the right with the Glen House and then move down towards the trolley barn. The first house, a white Queen Anne Victorian, was built for Reverend Wilbur Glenn Fisk in 1890. He was an Emory-educated minister, and he needed this house for his family of 10 children. One of his daughters, Flora, would marry Charles Candler of the Coca-Cola Candler family, who coincidentally lived just down the street. The best part about this house is that it has its own Instagram, which I will put a link in the show notes. You can follow the restoration, and it has the nicest occupants. Shout out to Burton. Next door to the Glen House is the King Keith House, another Queen Anne Victorian, but this one painted in a very San Francisco multicolored vibe. George King was the founder of King Hardware, and he had nine kids, and he was a founder and supporter of Inman Park Methodist Church. So this house also still stands in all its glory. If you've ever taken the Atlanta Preservation Center's Inman Park tour, you will start um, from the front porch, and if you're lucky, sometimes you can go inside and see. The house next to that is the LaCroix home. So Charles LaCroix made his money in insurance. He moved to Atlanta around 1900, and he fell in love with this spec house designed by architect G.L. Norman. He rented it for a few years, and then his family of nine, seven children, purchased it in 1903. One of his sons, Roy LaCroix, actually became mayor of Atlanta in 1940. The last of the Grand Dames stood on the corner of Edgewood and Waverly. And I mentioned it earlier, but it was the stately home of Philip Harrelson, an investor in the East Atlanta Land Company. He was one of the first men to buy and build an Inman Park, of course. And this house was the biggest of the Grand Dames, and it looked out onto the Mesa. Sadly, it was destroyed by fire. And today, there are two modern or more modern houses in the one lot. But there is one thing left to see. So there's a massive original granite staircase that right off the sidewalk. And so when you walk past them, you can still see the steps that would have led to Phil Harrelson's home. By 1891, more lots are auctioned and the long list of Atlanta's elite that have chosen Inman Park as their home is marketing gold. They would truly just list people's names in the paper to lure more buyers. I mean, it was just like, guess who lives here? And then they would just list everybody's name. Joel Hurt maintained ownership of some of the best lots, and he had some really big plans. So the first idea was he was going to build a hotel um, on the Mesa. And then the idea morphed into a conservatory slash auditorium slash hotel. And that was described as what was going to be on the corner of Edgewood and Euclid. Obviously, none of these plans ever came to fruition, but I think it would have been really cool to see what he would have come up with. So all of these new Inman Park residents need a school to send their children to. And in 1892, the Atlanta public school system is bursting at the seams. There's actually a waiting list of kids who need to enroll. A new school building was sent to bid to be constructed on the hill just past the Edgewood Avenue Bridge on the railroad. The Edgewood Avenue School received 13 construction bids, an unlucky number that troubled the school board. But after careful consideration, they chose J.H. Matthews. 
It was designed by G.L. Norman, and I talked about him in the exposition episode, um, because the expo was his first introduction into Atlanta society. And so you can kind of see his trajectory, like a decade later, he's designing the homes and buildings in this elite suburb. And one of my favorite stories about the school is that Joel Hurd, who, remember, he owned the streetcar that came past the school into Inman Park, he gave all of the students at that school a special ticket to ride at half price fare. And everyone else in Atlanta is pissed. And they're arguing there is no way this is fair. This is terrible. You know, other kids can't afford to get on the streetcar. And her downplays the whole thing. He's like, oh, well, that was, it was arranged with the city and you know the agreement will expire soon. And then all the kids will lose a discount. It'll be fine. A year after that school opened, the United States had a serious economic depression called the Panic of 1893 hitting every sector of the economy and causing political upheaval, it would affect and influence Inman Park. I mean, people aren't exactly scooping up land and building mansions in a depression. So this is my stopping point for part one. While this event certainly did not stop the rise of the neighborhood, you will see in part two that after these hard financial times, lot restrictions are lifted, green spaces were plotted for homes, and the slight loss of prestige began. But we'll cover all that next week. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review, check out my Patreon mini-episodes, and have a great weekend.